Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lom, your host today, and today we are going to be talking to Joanna Stingray about her book, Red Wave, An American in the Soviet Music Underground. Thank you for being here, Joanna. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Joanna Stingray, and the best way I've been described is the muse of the Russian underground rock and roll. Um, Basically, I went to Russia in the 80s through the mid-90s, and I put out a double album called Red Wave to expose Americans uh, to Russian rock and roll, and that there was um, underground rock there that was comparable to rock and rollers everywhere in the world. So how did you end up in the Soviet Union in the 1980s? And how did you connect to the underground music scene? You know, really, it was fate. I um, grew up and my father, who was not a filmmaker, in the early 60s was making a documentary at home. And I remember him in his office and he was splicing the film. It was all over the floor. And he was very passionate about this documentary he was making. It was called Truth About Communism. So from a very early age, I was always warned never go behind the Iron Curtain. Um, and, and the Soviet Union is the evil empire. And he was completely obsessed with it. And in fact, Ronald Reagan, who was governor of California at the time, narrated this film. This film later was shown in high schools in the late 70s, including my high school. So I always had this thing in my head about, wow, what is this place that's so dangerous, the forbidden uh, Iron Curtain? Um, and then, um, Later on in the 80s, I was trying to do rock music and I had an EP out um, temporarily. And when that finished, we we had some issues with the manager that stole some money. So it, it kind of all fell apart. And it was the first time in my life that I thought, oh, okay, I'm, I'm 23 years old. What am I going to do now? I have to figure out my path. And I called my sister who was going to school in London. And she said, oh, um, you know, we're taking a trip to Russia, one week trip um, here. And I said, are you kidding me? I'd like to go. I had a light bulb go off in my head and reminded me about all the things uh, my father had warned me about and thought that's a great place to go for a week to clear my mind, give myself a break, and then come back and figure out what I'm going to do. Never imagined that this one-week trip would change my life forever. Well, I was supposed to be here a year. I'm going on nine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Russia has a a very... Uh, strong and, and deep pull, um, you know, through through the, the, the dirt and the earth. It is an incredible place. So how did you connect with the underground music scene? Because, um, you know, a one-week tour sounds like, you know, just seeing the sights, maybe. So um, we were three and a half days Moscow and three and a half days Leningrad. And, of course, you're supposed to stay with the tour, which is mostly on the buses all day. And you have the guy who's giving you the rote information that she does every day. And um, we went there on the first three and a half days. It was exactly what my father had described. It looked cold. It looked dull. The people looked unhappy. They were in dark blues and blacks. And, and it just 
didn't look like a place I'd ever want to come back to. Um, before I had left for the trip, I mentioned it to my best friend who reminded me that her older sister had married a Russian um, uh, immigrant. And I spoke to him before I left and he said, oh my gosh, you're going to Russia. You have to meet one of my old good friends, Boris Gorbachev, the most famous rock and roller in Russia. I laughed like every American at that time in 1984 and, and never imagined there could be anything close to what we would call rock and roll there. But after spending the three and a half days being very unimpressed in Moscow, I decided in Leningrad, I have nothing to lose and set up a meeting to, to meet Boris. And that opened up everything. So um, how, how did your interview with Grabinshikov change things? Because I've actually seen Grabinshikov in concert, but, you know, in, I think, maybe three or four years ago, he's now, you know, in his 50s and his audience is mostly people, again, in their, their 40s or 50s. Um, so it's, it's a very different scene now. Uh, how did, would you like to tell our audience a little bit about who he is, just in case people don't know, and how, um, you know, meeting him change things for you? Yes, he is actually 67 right now. And oh, wow. I met him uh, in 1984. And um, when I met him, again, I didn't believe there could be rock and Russia. And I came in with my album cover and my promo shots to show him, you know, that he's meeting a Western rocker, thinking that would be really cool. The minute I set eyes on him, I did feel something very extraordinary and, and felt, oh my gosh, this person's going to change my life. Um, but it wasn't until we sat down and started speaking and I played him my stuff. He listened on my Sony Walkman. He thought, oh, that's great. That, that boys are my toys. They sound, they sound kind of punk and Beverly Hills Brat. That's, that's, you know, crazy song. And I was sitting there, you know, proudly. And then I said, oh, do you have anything of yours I can listen to? Just, you know, being kind, not thinking there'll be anything worth listening to. And I put a cassette in of his music, put my Walkman on, and then the music started playing, even though they recorded only on two track. The amount of interest instruments going from one side, one headphone to the other back and forth, and the music was so haunting and so powerful. I didn't know a word of English. I mean, I didn't know a word of Russian, so I couldn't understand the lyrics, but I somehow knew that these were important words. I, 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 it just changed everything. And then hearing his voice, that had this echo and it sounded happy, but then sad. And, and it, it was just such a mix of emotions that it made me realize, realize in the moment, number one, I am not an artist. And I started slinking in my chair. I was so embarrassed. This is a real artist. And number two, the real power of music and of a song. So that moment changed everything for me. And that, and, and the next, Two and a half days I had left on the trip, I tried to spend every second I could with him. And on the last day, I did interview him. And interviewing him, you know, made me even just fall into this whole energy and essence of what was going on there because everything he said was so eye opening. You know, I went over there again as a 23 year old. I was very naive. I was young. I wasn't worldly. I, I hadn't read a lot of poetry you know, or intellectual essays. I was a very typical, you know, 23-year-old from Los Angeles. So hearing his answers in the interview and him talking about life and the meaning and why we're here and searching inside yourself just touched me very deeply. And, and it, it made me just want to spend my whole life there. And from that first trip, 
I really spent the next you know, few years trying to get back as often as I could. And it was not easy to get back to Russia in those days. You could only go in through these official um, in-tourist trips that almost always went out of London and they were one-week trips. So I basically spent three months in Los Angeles working to make money, trying to get on another trip to go for a week. That was the first two um, to three years. And then after that, thank goodness things changed and I could start staying a little bit longer. Yeah, it's still difficult to get a visa uh, on occasion. Um, official tours are easiest, but I mean, that's why I work here is <laughs> because that, you know, educational visas working in a university is uh, actually a fairly easy way to get here and stay here. Um, but yeah, it, it, the visa issue is still a, a problem. Yeah. So, Nothing's ever easy in no, Russia. God, it no. is never easy, no matter if it's under communism, uh, capitalism, it's never easy. <laughs> Russians love difficult bureaucracy. <laughs> they, they do, but I, I, I did learn throughout my trips there that difficulty does put layers to who you are. It makes you a more interesting person, a deeper person, so... Yes, it does. So what sort of things surprised you beyond Grabinshikov actually being, you know, a phenomenal artist about the USSR? You said, you know, initially your impression was that it was cold and gray and awful. Clearly that changed. Yes. And the biggest surprise for me was how different people and life was behind closed doors compared to out on the streets. And what I learned very quickly is behind closed doors, they basically were living their lives and, and um, expressing themselves very similar to Americans. I was shocked the similarities between us and, and how we communicate and how we um, enjoy being together and, and discussion, discussing life and things. So that, that to me was the biggest surprise, that it was really two different worlds, one on the street, one behind closed doors. Yeah, I think that's often surprising for a lot of Westerners is the Russians seem cold and unfriendly at first, and then you get into their kitchen and <laughs> they feed you till you pop and you spend hours just chatting about everything. Exactly. And, you know, it is all about the kitchens and, you know, a lot of people that I met in those first couple of years, including Boris, all lived in communal flats. So it's four rooms, three families, one in each room, and then the shared kitchen. The kitchen certainly was the center of a lot of things. And along with being in the kitchen was always tea, of course. And then another happy surprise that I saw from the first visit we had there on the first day to every other visit I ever had is, is the hospitality um, Russians give to anybody that walks in their door. And again, you know, we spent many years um, in the Russian way of life. My favorite word is tusovka, which basically means spending a lot of time doing nothing. So it was basically waking up and saying, what do you, what should we do, Yuri? Oh, let's go see if Oleg's home. And there's no, Oleg doesn't have a phone. So you just go and knock on Oleg's door. He just woke up, he lets you in. He or his wife starts taking any food they left over to make a meal and you spend two, three, four, maybe the whole day there. So this whole kind of lifestyle was just so different from anything in America. In America, you know, you wouldn't go and just show up at someone's house and then expect them to give you food. But the hospitality of the Russians is, is really um, above and beyond anything I've experienced. And, and it's incredible. 
Yeah, I've I've spent some time in the Russian village, and I remember not eating for two or three days afterwards because the babushki <laughs> just love feeding you, and they look so sad that you don't want to just keep eating these mounds of food they yes. put in front of you. Yes, <laughs> you're like, oh my god, I have eaten like half a chicken and like four potatoes. I can't eat more. Yeah, but they they're like more prosty. Yeah. It's like it's always a bad thing because <laughs> it right. means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Russians are very, very hospitable. Um, they give you a place to stay without asking a whole lot of questions. They feed you. It is very different from the West. Um, yeah. And I, I haven't spent enough time there lately. I go for a couple of weeks to have my book releases. So I, I don't know how much has changed you know, under capitalism or what recently, but definitely in the 80s and 90s, um, it was incredible. I remember that none, none of them had cars or even knew how to drive. And somewhere, I think in the late 80s, Sasha Titoff, the bass player from Aquarium, somehow got a car. And he just it never had a second thought that anyone that needed to go anywhere, he would drive them because he was the one with the car. So it was just a given that that you know, he would help out anyone who needed help getting anywhere. Well, a lot of people still don't have cars. A, a huge number of my students still don't drive. Mm -hmm. um, but their Uber and uh, taxis are much more prevalent and much more affordable. So people, you know, just flag down an Uber. And in Moscow and I, maybe Petersburg, they have these like ride sharing cars where you have your driver's license and you just like rent a car for an hour. It's I wouldn't drive in Moscow. <laughs> I could not no, me. No. Well, you know, the funny thing was how we got around in the 80s, if you didn't take the underground or get on one of the buses, is you did flag down cars. And it was a very, I write in the book, it was a very specific way that you would kind of wave your hand um, low and out a little bit and a car would stop and you would tell them where you wanted to go and they would decide if they wanted to take you or not and if they did you would sit down and they would take you and somehow everybody kind of knew how much you should tip that person so the funny thing was that this was kind of the pre-uber mm -hmm. that they were doing this already in the soviet union <laughs> yeah i mean it, all that's changed is now you order them on your phone <laughs> right right <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people make extra money that way, and a lot of people don't have cars, so it's you know it's a pretty decent system. Yeah, yeah. Only every now and then you get a crazy person, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so how do you think visiting Russia changed you as a person? You know, I think my my years in Russia really made me who I am today. A lot of who I am today are from my experiences back in Russia in the, certainly in the eighties. Um, I think it made me look at life more from an internal place instead of just what's going on around me. It certainly made me a much better songwriter. You know, before I met Boris and started writing with him and then wrote with many of the other Russian rockers, you know, I would look at life and write what I saw in the lyrics and who I became through being around them and working with Boris is it's more about, you know, experiencing life and then thinking about how that affects you inside and how it makes you as a person. So it really changed me as an artist and it, it changed me as a person. So you also met Victor Soy. Um... He, of course, is currently not with us and hasn't been for some time. Would you like to maybe tell our younger audience 
a little bit about him and his impact on you and your music? Yes, Victor Tsoi is one of the underground rockers that I met through Boris Grabinchkov. His band was named Kino, and I first saw them playing a rock festival in the beginning of 1985 uh, in Leningrad and was immediately taken by their songs. In fact, they were the one band when I saw them in concert that again, even though I didn't understand any Russian, they they had a hook to their to their songs. The choruses, um, you know, stuck in your in in your brain. And I remember being at the concert and found myself singing "Vida and I, I'm like, "What am I singing?" Um, so I was attracted uh, instantly to their music. And then I met him that night at a, at a party. And on stage, he stands very tall. At least in the first concert I saw, and his legs are shoulder length apart. And he didn't move around the stage a lot. He would stamp his foot and he would turn his head a little to the left and he would see a sharp angle of his jaw and he was just a powerful presence and he had this very deep voice and it just mesmerized you and it, it, he commanded you to to watch him and to listen to him and then when i met him that evening i i was exposed to a completely other side to him which is this very easygoing very relaxed comfortable person to be around and i felt right away that he was an old friend and we ended up becoming um very very good friends and of course i ended up marrying his guitar player Yuri kasparian but victor tsoi was probably the one of the best friends i've had in my life he just was such a genuinely nice wonderful person and he means so much to me even though he's been gone 30 years it doesn't feel like that i i just i think about him often he was also a very talented visual artist too, wasn't he? Well, he, he, um, what changed everything. So all of the bands were underground and they could only play a couple of these clubs that were started for the so-called amateur bands that the KGB could keep an eye on them. And in 1987, Victor, uh, was in a movie called Asa at the last three or four minutes of this film. And it was such a huge um, scene of where he is, it ends up playing one of his songs called Changes. And it was just an iconic scene that touched everybody in the Soviet Union and he instantly became this huge hero. And then a year later, he actually starred in a film uh, called Igla with Rashid Nugmanov, who was a um, Kazakhstan a famous director. And that, again, put him even on a bigger level because he became in Russia, you know, the Bruce Lee of Russia or the Schwarzenegger because there was action in the film. Victor loved Bruce Lee and loved to pretend to do karate and kung fu and all that. So he did become, beside being so famous on the level of his music, he became even more famous through these films and acting. I've seen some of his drawings too, because I know he attended um, uh, an art art school because you know I, that was the thing you had to be enrolled in a school or at least pretend to have a job or something in the Soviet yes. Union. Yes, yes. Uh, and I, certainly his art also looked very interesting too. Um, he he was a great artist. He was trained as an artist. I believe he went to school for woodworking. Um, but he did these really whimsical, kind of brilliant, dark but funny drawings. I remember in 1985, I had gone to see Andy Warhol to show him photos 
of all of the art of my friends. And he was shocked that half around the world that they were doing things similar, the graffiti type art, you know, like Basquiat or Keith Haring. Um, so yeah, Victor was an amazing artist and um, I have a few pieces. My favorite portrait that was done of me is by Victor that I have on, on my wall in my office. So yes, he was, he was quite an accomplished artist. How was life on the underground music scene affected by, you know, the strict Soviet rules about people having to be productive, um, about having to have a job or going to art school or, you know, you couldn't just be creative and hang out? Yeah, because of uh, communism, everybody had to have a job. And so from my interviews, um, I started to realize that most of the underground rockers would take jobs where that were kind of, you know, more or less on the bottom of the totem pole, you know, Vic, uh, Yuri, um, sorry, Boris was a, uh, at one point, um, a guard, so he could work 24 hours every seven days. Victor Soy shoveled coal, the same thing, you could work one day and then have five or six days off. So many of the musicians worked at the same place that had the nickname Kam Kamchatka and they shoveled coal and Yuri worked at a place where he was in charge of these boiler systems. So they, they did all have to have some official job that of course gave them an income, but very, very little money. So it wasn't really enough to live on, um, but it allowed them free time to do their music. And that was the most important. And, you know, how they could play or release music you know, was not easy. It was complicated. They, they were not allowed to record for the state owned record company, Melodia. That was the only record company at that time. Um, they were not allowed to play in, in large halls or tours. So the underground level meant that they were recording on two track and they would make kind of their own covers for the case of the, of the tapes or it would then be put on cassette with also homemade covers and they would hand it to a couple of people. And in months you had sometimes millions of copies all over the Soviet Union, certainly of Aquarium stuff and then of Kinos and, and Elisa's and many others. So this is um, more like the mixtapes that used to come out of New York from the uh, hip hop artists? Um, yeah, that, that it's, you know, people when they can't do things officially become much more creative and find a way to do it. So it actually worked quite well. And I remember when everything changed and Boris um, had an album come out on Aquarium, he was the first one that was allowed to put his album out on Aquarium with no cens censorship. How he handed it to them, they put it out. And then the other bands followed, but Kino didn't. And I have an interview I did with Victor Tsoi in 88 and asked him, why aren't you putting it out on, on Melodia? And he said, well, because they put out one of his records without asking him and that made him very upset. And he said, you know what? I can get enough people to listen to my songs by just doing it the way we always had, giving it to a few people and they get copied. And again, they were most interested in creating their music and getting people to listen to it. Um, getting money from it was probably the least important thing to them. Um, but again, during the underground time, they started becoming famous, especially Boris, who was older. So he was one of the first to start writing his own lyrics in Russian. And when he started getting a big following all across the Soviet Union, other bands were coming up. I think the Soviets realized that it was better to kind of um, create these this rock club in Leningrad where these bands could perform, could borrow some instruments, 
so at least they can keep an eye on them. So they could play at the Rock Club and the Palace of Youth. They, again, did not get any money for the concerts, but at least it gave them somewhere that they could perform because before that they were basically just playing home concerts where somebody would invite him over to a communal flat. There'd be one big room, a hundred people shoved in it and Boris, you know, would play the guitar, maybe have a violinist with him. I'm sure their neighbors loved them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, mo you know, most people would be thrilled. I'm sure whoever did, you know, put on these concerts, at different apartment buildings. I'm sure they invited the neighbors and they were thrilled to, to be able to hear Boris and be so close to him. So how did the authorities react, both in the USSR and the US, to not only the underground rock movement, but your involvement because you are an American? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was not easy to not stick out because I had bleached blonde hair on the front and then I ended up having some blonde on the underneath and then I had it shaved in the beginning on the sides. So we were told from the very first day that we met Boris with his uh, cello player Sieva um, to be very careful speaking English out in public, to act Russian, which to my sister and I, she was on many of the trips with me, meant to just have a serious face and look down, you know, don't have eye contact with people. Um, when we first went to the Rock Club Festival that Boris invited us to, he said the KGB will be there, so just kind of sit and watch the concert and, and, and you know, don't speak to anybody. And um, it was, in fact, at that concert that I was arrested after. Um, we went backstage with Boris invited to after the concert, and we were so in awe of the whole concert, all the bands we saw, and somebody came up and whispered something to Boris, and he said, you know, the KGB are back here, you guys have to go. And they had showed us before the concert a way to get out a back door from the backstage that led you right out to the street so we could avoid going through the big hall. And my sister and I ran down the hall just giddy, so happy that, that we just experienced this real rock and roll in Russia. And we went and, and hit the door and it was locked and we couldn't get out. And when we turned back around, we saw a guy that we assumed was KGB. You know, there were people in suits, and I always assumed that anyone in a suit was a KGB, which wasn't true. Many of the intellectuals and poets, you know, that was their style. But this guy was, and we, we went back through the hall. Somehow I, I, I lost my sister, but I got to the crowd just about to go out the doors, and two guys, not in any uniform or anything, grabbed me and took me down to a room and, and questioned me, and it was a very scary experience. Um, so that was the first experience with the KGB, but I had many after that, and for a long time, it was kind of, um, you know, passive aggressive where um, I would feel that somebody was following me or I would rent cars and I could see a car that was following me. I'd get stopped for traffic violations when I didn't do anything. It was all on this weird level. And when I tried to call, which was not easy in that time, you know, again, in the 80s, there was no internet, there was no cell phones. Um, the landline call in Russia was very difficult and quite often once I would start speaking to Boris or anyone, the phone line would be disconnected or then it would be busy all the time. Um, so I always had the sense that I was, I was being, you know, watched. And I assumed that on the American side, the same thing was happening. Um, then a little bit later, my second year there, I was actually um, interviewed by the FBI. They kind, of, they kind of made up this whole scenario to call my mother and pretend they were going to speak with her about my father's film, even though they were 
divorced already 14 years and my father was alive. They could have called my father. Um, but basically, I walked into my mother's house one day. She called me to, to ask me to come over. I walked in and this woman was sitting there. And my mother said, oh, come in. This is Betsy Cordova from the FBI. I've been telling her all about your Russia. She'd love to talk to you. And my mouth dropped because for me, I was always so afraid that I would do something that would piss off the Soviets. I assumed they were watching me. And that's why I never went to any kind of you know, political mm -hmm. things or things in the United States that might tip them off. Now, what would yes. tip them off more than to see me, you know, come out of a house with a lady from the FBI. So I actually was furious and, and, you know, but I, I did speak with her and I had one other meeting with her. And then I do remember when I was in Russia once and Boris said to me, you know, nonchalantly, how, only how Boris can. He said, oh, you know, the KGB was asking me about you. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, they were asking questions. I said, what were you doing talking to the KGB? Was my first thought. And he said, oh, they call all of us underground rockers once in a while and want to talk with us. And some of the rockers, you know, say F you. Some of them, you know, Kostya Kinchev will run back to Moscow and ignore them. He says, but I have nothing to hide. So I figure no problem. So I talk to them once in a while. And, and that in itself shocked me um, as some of the others supposedly talked to them as well. But that was the first concrete time that I realized, okay, this is getting dangerous. And the one thing I didn't want in my life was not to be able to come back because at this point I was so embedded in, in Russian life and with my friends and falling in love with Yuri. So I said to Boris, will you see if I can go and talk with them? There was this big white house with the KGB building in Leningrad. And I said, I have nothing to hide. Ask them you know, if I can come. And I remember Boris, uh, next time I saw him, said to me, oh my gosh, I, I told them that you wanted to come talk to them and they got so nervous. I've never seen them like this. And they said, no, 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 don't, <laughs> don't tell her to come down here. I mean, it was as if they really got flipped out that this American's going to come walking into the KGB building. So that was kind of a setback. That disappointed <laughs> me because I was really afraid that you know, I was I was not going to be able to come back because this is right before um, the Red Wave album was coming back. Um, not long after that, I guess maybe on the next trip, um, I did meet with them, but it was again in a very convoluted, you know, sideways mm -hmm. I way. Same as the FBI, where Boris had said to me that um, these um, sociology professors wanted to know if they could interview me um, about Americans and what they do in life and what they enjoy. And, you know, he told me in a way and, and squinted his eye a little that I, I assumed that this was the KGB, but I said yes, because I had nothing to hide. And at this point, I had started promoting Red Wave in the U.S. and I had press that said these great things about, look at Russians, they're just like us. I had photos of me speaking in high schools in the U.S. showing uh, the rockers, the music, and their videos. So I, I thought it could only help me to, to go and meet with them. And so they asked to meet me at the Yevropoiske Hotel right off Nevsky Prospect. And I came in, and these two guys were standing there were kind of frumpy. So I actually thought maybe I had imagined all this. Maybe these actually are two professors. <laughs> But they said, um, we have a room on the second floor. We thought it would be more comfortable. And they took me up to this room and opened the door. And it looked 
to me, what I learned and, and saw films in high school of, um, you know, czarist Russia, there was this table full of, you know, 30 plates of food and crystal with, with vodka and everything. And when I saw that, I thought, oh my gosh, we're not in Kansas anymore. And then I, I of course, knew they were the KGB. And what really was interesting to me um, from my experiences twice with the FBI in this one meeting with the KGB is that they were absolutely trained at the same school. And they almost have tunnel vision that when they see the red flags, which was an American going in and out every three months, they could not understand that anybody would be coming to Russia for any other reason than to be a spy. Mm -hmm. And I kept telling the both of them, it's only about the music. I'm just trying to show Americans how similar we are. I'm just trying to, you know, have a bond between our two countries. I'm not doing anything. It's about the music. And, you know, they never, neither of them ever came out and asked me straight, are you a spy? It was all these, again, twisted questions. Have you met any Russian immigrants in the States? Have you ever been to the American embassy? You know, the, they would ask me, and, you know, so the questioning was so similar. And, and both the KGB and the FBI probably knew in the end what I was saying was true but they still played this game of pretending, you know, they, they were asking me for other reasons. You know, it's, it, it just was, it was, it was so strange. And, and I really just believe that it there's one school. It hasn't changed much. Uh, the FSB and I have had similar <laughs> encounters. Oh my God. There was a guy at work that kept following me and asking me really personal questions. Like who was I dating and stuff. And I thought he was just a creep. So finally one day I told him to F off. And it turns out he was FSB. I would have actually felt better knowing this was a professional interest. Not that he was just a pervert. Right, right. Well, it's funny because I do get different emails, you know, time to time from different Russians. I got an email a couple of days ago of this guy that's a professional translator, and he sent all of these clips from him translating Putin and all these people. And he decided to celebrate his grandfather, I guess, a couple of years ago on one of the, the um, holidays of World War II and somehow got interested in poetry from those days and was interested in trying to uh, put, put it out as a book, but he wanted someone in the West to see if his translations and the poetry are good and this and that. And he even said that he had asked Boris once if he could translate his song and Boris said yes, and here's the song he translated of Boris. And it's funny because I sent it to my friend, uh, my Russian friend and said, yeah, I don't have any context how to help this guy. I said, but if, if the KGB was still around, to me, it felt like this is how they would have reached out to me. It was it was like this bizarre, you know, rem remembrance of how they do things. And it seemed very similar. Yeah, I mean, the thing you said about them being terrified that you show up. I mean, my, my work has a, an FSB department in the main building. And when I did an interview with Russia Today, I actually had to get their clearance for it, which was weird. And a different story. But I I walked in to give them paperwork and they like freaked out that I was in their office. <laughs> I don't know, contaminating it with being American. And they like shooed me out and demanded that my boss bring it over. And I'm like, it's not a secret. I know who you are. I know you're here. Your office is ugly. Like, <laughs> why do we care? But I know. It's so funny that, you know, our image of them, certainly through Western films, is just you know the big bad wolf and how scary they are and 
you know, even Boris told me when he would go in, you know, once or twice a year to have them question him, you know, when, when they were done, he said it was very relaxed. When they were done, all the other guys would come in and say, excuse me, can we have your autograph? I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it's just so interesting. They were, many of them were fans. <laughs> so you also lived through some of the big changes in the USSR. What was your personal experience like of Perestroika and Glasnost and all of that big change? Yeah, I do feel like I lived through, through, Three, three time periods. One was communism, one was glasnost, one was capitalism. Probably the best time, I mean, I, I loved it under communism because it was so different and it, and it was shocking, but then so enlightening in many ways. But um, the glasnost period was, was really good because the Russians, I've never seen them happier because very little changed under glasnost except that you could be freer to be on the streets and laugh a little bit and speak more and nothing changed in terms of their water their electricity was pennies you know things were taken care of they still had their jobs you know it wasn't it wasn't like what came after that capitalism where it was much more you know taking care of yourself being aggressive figuring out how to make money what to do having to pay you know, a, a substantial amount for a Russian person all of a sudden for your water, for your electricity. So um, Glasnost, though, was was great because you could feel it. You know, it, you could feel the wind of change and you could feel just freedom in the air, even if the Russians didn't quite understand what that freedom was. And it was a very happy time, you know, under communism not the musicians, but their friends and, and normal Russians I would meet would always, you know, be crazy. America, we want freedom like America. And they, they just had this, this just dream of being like Americans. But I would tell them that yes, Americans are free, but, but it's not that simple. We pay a high price for our freedom. And I said, you know, a large percent of Americans own a home, which means they have a mortgage. And I said, having a mortgage basically means you're in handcuffs. And for 30 years for that mortgage, you have to pay every month. And that means for most people that you're doing a job that brings you in enough money to pay for that instead of maybe doing what you would want to do. And in Russia, I was always amazed how every other person was an artist or a musician. You know, people could follow what they want to because life was so cheap and, and they you know, they didn't have the pressure. Well, I'm of, a millennial, of, so homeownership yeah. is a fantasy. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so again, you know, Glasnost was the beginning where they felt the freedom and they didn't have to experience what you paid for that. So it, it was a good time. Uh, you know, Glasnost was, was also when all of the musicians, musicians, could play in any hall they wanted to, could tour all over the Soviet Union. Um, you know, they were put on the TV, they were played on the radio. So it was a happy time for the artists as well as the average Russian. Did you visit during the collapse period of the Yeltsin years? Yes, I was there um, during the uh, attempted putsch when the, I guess it was 93. When they burned um, down the... Uh 
White House building in Moscow and put tanks on the street? Yes. And I lived about three miles away on Leninsky Prospect up on a, uh, I think on the 10th or 11th floor of an apartment building. And by that point, I had a remodeled apartment because, you know, um, communism had fallen and it was all capitalism. So you could pay and have these European people come and redo your apartments. And at that point, there was CNN on the TV. And I remember seeing TV showing what was going on and the bombing at the White House. Um, and it looked like all of Moscow was on fire and under siege. And of course, everyone in America started calling me, get out, get out, what's going on? And I would look out my window to look down and saw Russians going into the market, waiting for the bus. Nothing had changed. You know, what was happening in that one little center. And that was my first experience um, to how the news kind of shows you what's happening, but in a distorted way that exaggerates it. And that also happened either shortly after that or before. I don't know what, what the time frame was. There was the big earthquake. I guess it says after. In 1994, there was a big earthquake in Los Angeles. And I remember the same thing. All the Russians calling me, oh my gosh, Los Angeles is gone. There's a big earthquake. And CNN showing all of this destruction. And, and it looked like it was leveled. And I called my mom with tears in my eyes. Oh my God, are you okay? And she said, no, Los Angeles, everything is fine. It's in the valley in one section where things fell. And it was, you know, a, a serious thing. And, and some people did die and a lot of buildings fell down, but not to the extreme of what, you know, CNN was showing. So it was kind of my, my first eye opening, uh, you know, to not always believe everything that was impressed. You know, I, I knew that in Russia. I already knew through my friends and how things were that you, you never take things for what they are in Russia. There's always something behind, you know, some, some, some other hidden meaning. So in Russia, I knew that, but I was, that was my eye opening, um, lesson to, to Western, um, uh, news and, and portraying of information as well. Yeah, I've had similar experiences. I was in Moscow during the uh, Georgian-Russian War, and people were calling me, and they're like, oh, my God, you're going to die. And I'm like, do you know how far Moscow is from Georgia? <laughs> I'm fine. <Yeah>. Everything <laughs> is fine. No one cares. We're right. good. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, yeah, it is amazing how the news makes panics out of things that are not really that big a deal in real life. Yeah, and my least favorite of the what I call the three periods that I was in Russia was was capitalism. And when it first came, when the Soviet Union fell and everybody was just screaming in the streets and even louder and happier, that part of it was exciting. But then it very quickly turned turned to this obsession with consumerism and somehow you could get everything Western being sold in Russia and, and, you know, all Western things were being sold. And I don't know, some Russians had money to buy these Western things, even had dollars to buy, you know, it just changed. But I, I remember being a guest at somebody's house. They weren't the rockers. They were some of their friends. And the guy had a brand new Sony stereo and some other guy said, Oh, I just bought that same stereo. How much did you pay? And the guy said, oh, I, I paid $850 for it. And the other guy, you know, puffs up with, with such, uh, you know, a proud feeling. And he said, well, I paid $1,000 for it. And he was so much happier that he paid more for the same stereo. It was so strange. And then on the streets, people would have all these new 
glasses, like Ray-Ban sunglasses, but the little tag that said Ray-Ban was still on the glass. And then people would be in suits and they would flip open their suit to show that it was a Giorgio Armani or whatever it was. So I, I felt like I was in the twilight zone a little bit. It was, it was really, really strange. And they, they were so obsessed with money all of a sudden, which was never part of it before. And again, not the rockers, I'm talking about the, the Russian public. And then I remember hearing rumors that, um, you know, most of us in Moscow would get our fruit and vegetables from the open markets. It came up from the South where it was warmer. And then there were these rumors going around that they were shooting urine into green tomatoes to make them red because there was just this drive to make money and get money. And so that would have been my least favorite time there under capitalism. And I would have left a lot sooner. The only reason I stayed until 1996 is that I ended up having a TV program where I was making money for the first time in Russia, but also was was doing something creative that I love to do. I have to say it's not that bad anymore. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's one of the reasons, though, I do not live in Moscow. I live in Kirov because it, it there isn't a lot of money and people are not as focused on making money and having those status symbols as people in Moscow are. Right. Kirov right. is a working class city and we pretty much no one has money. So right. Yeah, Moscow has, you know, some great five-star hotels. They have some of the best restaurants in the world now. I you know, I said to somebody cuz when I was there last year, you know, you might as well be in New York. I mean, it's not so different. Well, it smells less bad and it's not as cold. Yeah. Those Atlantic <laughs> winds are horrible. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But it, it definitely feels like a, a, a metropolitan city anywhere in the world. You know, any of the big ones. It has everything and everything. How did the music change in the 1990s? Did it become more commercial as people were focusing on making money? You know, it's interesting because the famous rockers from the 80s, the underground rockers, are still the ones who are famous today and, and sell their music. Um, you know, rock just kind of lost its essence, I think, after the 90s. And it was, you know, not as easy for the up and coming rock bands to have the same kind of fame as the underground rockers did. There were a few rock bands, um, but it definitely changed it. You know, in all the interviews I did with the underground rock bands, when they were talking about Western bands, American bands in the 80s, many of them said the same thing, which was like, oh, well, we loved your rock in the 60s because it was so meaningful and it was poetry, but your rockers now have these big, you know, multi-million dollar contracts with record companies. And that that makes their music a little more dull because they, they're, they're kind of guided by what's expected of them and what the record companies want. And I, I did feel that too. I think the Leningrad rock of the 80s was very similar to American rock from the 60s, which is why it was so magical. Um, and when you have those, those magical times in history, you don't know them while you're in them. But in hindsight, we know that, you know, San Francisco, Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles, New York in the 60s was this, this magical time of music that then was never repeated again. And that was the time Leningrad in the 80s. It was just 
something special that happened that was iconic that everybody now looks back on with a gleam in their eye and everybody's very nostalgic for those times in Leningrad as Americans are always nostalgic for revisiting the 60s. You know, there's a lot of new documentaries out about the music in the 60s. So, you know, you can't repeat that. So what came in the 90s, there might have been some newer interesting rock bands, but it's just that the 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 essence, the energy of what was going on in the 80s was gone. Well, I associate 90s music in Russia with terrible, terrible pop. <laughs> well, and listen, even in the 80s, most Russians did not listen to or love rock and roll. It was still a limited part of, of the Soviet population. You know, in the 80s, the most famous band in Russia was ABBA. So there you go. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> my students really are not big fans of Russian artists. Um, you know, they will, if I ask them, they do presentations on like Beyonce or something, but they, they, most of them really do not like, they grew up in the, the 2000s, sort of that 2000s pop. Um, or Right. Which is interesting whatever. because, you know, Beyonce, I mean, that's, that's pop too. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't correlate what's going on now in the West to something that was as interesting as what was going on in Russia in the eighties or in America in the sixties. Creative, or I don't know. They like yeah, it better. Yeah, um, I'm not a big well, and, Queen Bay fan, but you know that's who they like. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's creative, so. But yeah, I mean, and then like even rap, they they love, for example, you know, hip hop out of the eighties and nineties um, uh, from the U.S., but they hate Russian rap. I, I think it is about the the essence of having a soul as opposed to it being a commercial venture. I think people can feel the difference. Mm, mm, yeah. So how has your life progressed since you left in 1996? Um, what have you well, been? Well, I left Russia in 1996 pregnant. I left at the time where there was no internet, bad phone service, no cell phones. So when you left, you left. And I had very little communication for, you know, many years when I left. And I, I basically became passionate about being a mother the same way I had become passionate about spreading this music and, and doing my own music with the Russians. So I really became a full-time mother for many years. Um, when I first came back, I had just released an album in Russia and I had gotten interest from Atlantic Records and they were interested in um, giving me a record deal, but they wanted me to get a band together and, you know, go out on a bus and play some small clubs. And I had just had my daughter and that, that thought of, you know, being on a bus in cheap hotels wasn't how I wanted to begin my daughter's life. So I kind of passed that up and just became a full-time mom. I did do an album in 2004, I went back to Russia for the um, uh, 20th anniversary of my first time there. And Madison, my daughter was eight, came with me. And so I recorded some new music then and released that album in Russia. But since then, I haven't really done any music except for produced some of my daughter's songs. She's a songwriter and I take her in the studio and produce her stuff. But I basically, you know, ended up with with three jobs here because I do own a house and I do have a mortgage and life in America is very, very expensive. I live in an expensive town. So I wasn't really doing anything with music. Um, 
for a long time. And I only had contact with Russia every once in a while. I would get a phone call from my friend Sasha Lipninsky from the uh, group Zvukimu or Sevagako from Aquarium. And they basically would call me once or twice a year to tell me about another friend that died. And it really got to the point that if I heard the phone, that crackling of long distance, I would get goosebumps thinking, oh my God, who's, who's died now? That was pretty much the limit of my interaction beside a couple times a year being called to do interviews with Russian TV. Either they'd send a film crew over to film, ask me about Victor Tsoi on the anniversary of his death or about my Russia. So it was just tidbits like that throughout the years. And then it was about four or five years ago that I got called to do an interview for a documentary called Frida Rock, which is basically about how Western rock helped bring down the Iron Curtain and my story in there of kind of doing the opposite, bringing out the Russian rock was part of it. But they had asked me for some of my, my footage. Everybody uh, knew that I had filmed a lot of stuff on video during the 80s. And I tr started to look for it and realized I had thousands and boxes of all these photos. And it led to me scanning all of my photos and deciding to put out a website. So that was about four years ago. And I knew the Russians would like it. I had no idea how much they would like it. And supposedly there was a half a million people on the site in the first two weeks. But I basically just put out every photo that I could find and, and scan from those days. And it made me realize how nostalgic and how much this time period meant to Russians and how much they wanted to know about it. So that led to me, you know, somehow getting back involved with Russia. Somehow one day I thought, oh, I wonder if any of my Russian friends are on Facebook. You know, I was on it just to post my trips for my family here. And lo and behold, I found Boris, I found Kosta Kinchev, I found everybody on Facebook and that kind of opened the Pandora's box where I started communicating again with them. And then it was how everything comes around. And somehow the whole Russian age came back around and I've been very involved with Russia the last three or four years and um, finally did what I always wanted to do was to get my stories down on paper. And with the help of my daughter, who's an amazing writer, um, I wrote my story, which was basically in two books, the first half, which was in Leningrad, the second half in Moscow, and they were released in Russia the last year. And so even though I still have my three jobs, my three regular jobs that are not creative, I, I've also had um, creative involvement with Russia the last couple of years and it keeps going. So I'm, I'm happier now that I'm, the Russia thing has come back around, you know, really, I realized it never left me. It's always been sitting, you know, deep down in my soul. And I, I, I really am, uh, you know, who I am from these people and, and how they changed me, my experiences there. So I'm, I'm happy it's come back around. Yeah. Once you get bit by the Russia bug, <laughs> you really can't escape. Yeah. So thank you for uh, coming on the podcast and telling us about your, your wonderful experience uh, in the eighties and nineties. Um, I was born in 1985. So unfortunately I missed you know, all of that right. transition. Um, and I've only known capitalist Russia, um, which is a very different beast. So, um, 
are there any other projects you're working on now? Or are you just promoting your book? Um, well, I'm very excited about the book. And I, I hope, I know Russian immigrants will love the book. And I think students will love the book. But people that just are interested in humans and, 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 and how Russia was in the 80s, I, I just hope a lot of people get to read it and um, see what it's like. Um, I just made a video and released a song that I recorded in 1987 called Love Is No Joke. And it's one of Victor's old songs. And I wrote written English lyrics and recorded it in 87, but I kept the choruses in, in Russian and nobody in Russia had ever heard it before. And I released it to a video I made from my archival um, video material of all of these shots of us running around and Victor and his life. So the Russian could really see how he is and see that smile and his energy and get a feel of why he was so important to me. And so now I just got a, um, a deal in Russia. There's a record company that wants to put out a bunch of my archival music that was not uh, released earlier. I had four or five albums, I think, released in Russia, but we're now going to release some different uh, things that haven't been released. So. Uh, that's happening and the Russians keep asking me to do new music. So I don't know, you know, if I'll come up with some more songs. Usually I write the lyrics from my partner writing the music and I don't have a partner now, but we'll see. So things come around and there is somebody trying to get um, a film deal or a series deal for TV on my story. If it happens, it happens. You know, I've been very lucky with everything I ever did in Russia. I don't actively try to make something happen. It's not premeditated. It's just Russia's something that just happens. It happens to you. You can't make it happen. So somehow it's back in my life. And I'm very excited um, to be one of the main people that is preserving the legacy of my friends. You know, so many of them have died. Sergei Kurok and the artist Timur Novikov, Viktor Tsoi, um, that I feel that I it was kind of my destiny to, to be the one that talks about them, shows photos, shows videos, and keeps their memory and their, their art alive. And I'm very grateful to be doing that. Well, that sounds like an excellent project. I can't wait to hear more about it. So thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you.